we in pakistan the young generation has grown up watching bollywood films if you ask me who's your favorite hero the first name that comes to my mind is from the bollywood industry and not the hollywood people don't know it because we've been overshadowed by the indian culture by the indian food for example if i make food they call it an indian curry and then i have to explain to them no this is not indian this is pakistani a lot of things get confused Welcome back, back, back to the Commonwealth of Dunces. I'm one of your co-hosts, Jump Daddy, joined here in our COVID-safe studios by the wonderful Valancey Sterling. Now, Val, a question. Can you answer? What are some distinctions between the nations of India and Pakistan? Okay, rightly or wrongly, and I reckon most of these are probably a little wrong, I think of Pakistan as drier than India. It's a strange way of perceiving it, but it's just because where where it sits geographically on the way towards the Middle East. Obviously religion, so post the partition, a lot of the Muslim community moving to Pakistan to leave a predominantly Hindu India. They're two different cricket teams, so that makes it nice and clear for the Australian community. I realise that's how I think about Pakistan. It's in relation to its history with India, its connection to India, and it's kind of the ways in which it is different from India are the things that you think about as opposed to the things that are really similar. Yeah, and I think that's complicated by the fact that Pakistan and India are both countries with relatively new man-made borders that both encompass and divide many ethnicities, many languages, many cultures. And on that note, of course, India is famously diverse, but so too is Pakistan. Yes, Pakistan is an explicitly Muslim state, but behind that patina of an official religion, there are many distinct peoples that can mingle under the Pakistani flag. One such group are the Pashtuns, they predominate in the northwest of Pakistan. And look, the Pashtun name might ring a bell, as next door in Afghanistan, the Taliban draws many of its members from Pashto speaking communities there. Now, whatever you think of the Taliban, it's uncontroversial to say that their membership skews male. So let's change the tune a little with our next guest, Aisha Hassan. Aisha is a journalist, an academic and mother. She was born into a Pashtun family near Pakistan's border with Afghanistan. And although she was raised in a conservative culture that often tends to see women confined to a domestic sphere, Aisha has made her own way. She was the first woman in her family to attend uni and went on to become a beat journalist around Pakistan and then a war correspondent next door in Afghanistan. Her career has seen her working for the German state broadcaster Deutsche Welle and SBS here in Australia. Right now, she's teaching at not one, not two, but three Australian universities as she completes her PhD.
So I'm the first woman in my family to be getting a university degree, let alone a PhD or going out of the country and getting an education in a Western society or a setup. And it feels amazing when your own mother had to go out of, be taken out of school because she was married at the age of 16. And I still have her science notebook. The ink is stained with her tears. She says she started crying when she got to know that she has to be pulled out of the university because she's getting married now. I still have that. So she wanted to be a doctor and she couldn't. And um, it's amazing when you go back, when I go back to my village and I ask my grandma, and I was talking to her and I said, women there still don't go out and vote. And I said to her that I want to run a campaign. And, And she told me very clearly, she said, don't even think about it. You'll be shot. They'll kill you. So when you come from that village and when you get an education and a degree. And then there are people who tell my wife when my father travels back to the village and he tells them the stories of how his daughter, referring to myself, is doing great. It got a scholarship or got invited by the University of Oslo to present or got invited by Deutsche Welle to present or got invited by the Liverpool University in England to present her work or is getting published, you know, things like that. There are people who come to my dad and say, so it's fine. Nothing's going to go bad if we let our daughters go into school. And and there have been so many girls who have gotten into school because they said, okay, if, referring to my dad, if he can let his daughter study and nothing bad has happened so far, then maybe we can let them go to school at least. There's such a limited perspective uh, mm-hmm. from the West into Pakistan. But I think one of them is of women either as literally veiled or as martyrs to the cause of their family. Everything is done under the thumb of the husband or the patriarch and everything is done for the furtherance of children. But of course, life is more complicated than that. For a woman like your mother, maybe for women who were once your girlfriends at school and still live in Pakistan, what do you see as the the pleasures of life, the upside of being a woman in Pakistan? So I understand that the the veil, the literal physical veil is considered as a sign of oppression. And I understand that as long as it's forced on a woman, it will be called oppression. But in Pakistan, not every woman covers her face or her head or wears the, the full black coat or the burqa for that matter. There are different parts of Pakistan where the conservative sides, for example, the Pashtun um, majority province, they wear it because it's part of their culture, subculture, as I would like to call it. And then in Balochistan, which is south uh, west, they also wear it. People in Punjab and in the north east side towards Azad Kashmir, people in Sindh, which is the southeast side, what is with India, women don't have to wear it. Not every woman covers. Of course, they cover their body, but the abaya or the burqa is not a mandatory thing. And I think it's quite a cultural thing. I think the situation got a bit worse in the 80s when the dictator then, who was later killed in a bomb blast, uh, Zia, what he did was he brought this entire wave of Islamization in the country. And with that, a lot of Saudi influence, the Salafist influence also came into the country, which brought these abayas and the Saudi looking whale into the country. And then it was... 2016, when this entire debate around feminism really got 
fired up and then the women started, you know, voicing out and they started standing up. And to an extent now that recently, in fact, last year, the debate about my body and my rights started. So this is the slogan that is connected to the Women's March in Pakistan, which is a direct challenge to the patriarchal systems. And now when I say this, of course, I'm not representing the women at large in Pakistan. I'm just representing a minority of women who are either educated or are privileged to be living mostly in Karachi or in Islamabad or in Lahore. And these three major cities are like metropolitan cities in the country. But there is a wave. There's a wave where women are standing up. I hate to say this, and I'm, I'm sure a lot of my fellow Pakistani listeners might not be very happy with me when I say this, but religious extremism has a, a very big role to play in all, all, all of this. And I think when you talk about religion, its first target and victim is a woman because religions are patriarchal. They are misogynist and they are patriarchal. And, I, and as I said, it is my experience and a lot of people might have problems with that. But I think it's time for us to face the problem. But given that, there are lots of delights. Being a woman is not just beautiful because you're a woman. You feel that. you're In Pakistan, you have respect for sure. It's so intersectional. A woman in Lahore or maybe in an elite area in Lahore going to a top women's university or a co-ed university will have a different experience growing up in Pakistan than a woman who is growing up in a village or in a smaller town where she is uh, forced to marry, marry her cousin and then she just leaves her education. And I think the problem with this is around the world. It's not just Pakistan. I think it's everywhere. It's, it's, I think that's the biggest pandemic that has been there for centuries, the inequality, the gender inequality between a man and a woman. But even now, Pakistan, the youth, and when I say the youth, I again refer to the metropolitan cities, the privileged class, the educated one who have access to the internet, who have access to the computers, who have access to education. They are starting this debate about reclaiming their identities, reclaiming their social positions, not only as a woman or a young man, but also as members of the LGBTI com and plus communities, which is amazing because there is no such concept of homosexuality in, in Islam. In fact, it is punishable by death. I'm so happy to see there's so many brave young girls and boys who are standing up, writing about it, coming out of their homes and um, taking up issues. So I think the best part of me being a woman growing up in Pakistan is that you see the worst that can happen to you you can see the worst that your brother or your father or your husband or your father-in-law to you in terms of oppression. But then you see the best happening to you as well. You can become a voice for the change. You can have a new direction or a new meaning for life for your younger siblings, for younger women, for your children. And you can actually become that change. From reading some of the let's put it frankly, some of the vitriol your articles and your online posts attract, seemingly from men, often in Pakistan. A general line of rebuttal to some of these things that you've said here would be that you are betraying your own culture. You have succumbed to the culture of the West and in furthering things like women's rights, LGBT, visibility and things along those lines, you're not doing some universal good, but rather more specifically, you are simply being a Western toady. 
Mm, exactly. So I'll give you a very basic example. Imagine you have guests coming to your house and you want your child to be at the best behavior because you don't want your the guests to learn, oh, the child is not listening to the parents or the child is cranky or sulky or, or, or has behavioral issues for that matter. So either you'll try to tell your child to stay in your room and don't come out unless the guests have left, or you'll keep the communication minimum, or you'll try to cover it up because you don't want to be embarrassed, right? But as soon as your guests leave with whatever impression they take, it does not mean that the problem is solved. You come back with the same problem. And this problem will only be solved if you try to focus on how to solve this problem instead of brushing it under the carpet. The problems with Pakistani society and Indian and Afghanistan, Bangladesh, specifically South Asia, Iran, and I think it's also widespread, even in Australia, right? What they do is just to save ourselves from embarrassment because we might not have the courage to become part of the solution. We would rather keep being a part of the problem and start keep brushing it under the carpet. The problem is confession. I think the biggest victory a human being can have is against their own ego. I always tell my students and people who come to me and talk to me about things is there is no such thing as neutral. You can't be neutral. There is no neutrality. You rather on this side or that side. Either you're part of the problem or either you're part of the solution. If you tell yourself that you're neutral and you're trying to brush things under the carpet, that means you're part of the problem. I don't want to be part of the problem. I want to be part of the solution. And being part of the solution means that I talk about it. But to talk about it, I need to have an opinion, an informed opinion, which is, of course, based on admission and confession of the problems that are there and the mistakes that we've made. So to pivot away from problems to things that maybe the world should know more about and indeed Mm. celebrate about Pakistan, what comes to mind? I think the very first thing is that I would really like the world to know that the Urdu literature and poetry and prose is one of the best that I've ever read. Now, I am a multilingual, but honestly, it's not because I have a bias towards my language. I think way Urdu poets have expressed emotions and improvised those emotional connections with either God or the world or their lover or their beloved or and or resistance or activism or revolution. I can't find anything close to that. I have read Shakespearean poetry and Wordsworth and Iliad, and I've grown up reading English literature and Urdu literature. For example, we have um, Ghalib. We have Mirza Ghalib, who was one of the top poets of the 18th and the 19th century, uh, and so now. And then there's there's Ilam Iqbal, who's known as the philosopher of the East. And then there's Hali, and then there's John Elia, and then there's Faiz Ahmed Faiz, there's Ahmed Faraz. There are so many names, even names that I was not aware of when I was growing up. And now is when I have even developed more love. And, and it's amazing that even these poets are even read in India especially those who are revolutionary. For example, works of Fez and Fez and of Habib Jalib, they're so revolutionary because they stood up against the Islamic dictators of the 80s and then they talked about rights and political identities. And of course, they some of them had to go into exile because of a lot of accusations around communism at that time. And so Urdu literature, I think, is beautiful and there's no other literature in the world that can even come second to it. Then... There is food. One thing that really breaks my heart is that 
Pakistani food is confused with Indian food. For a complete ignoramus, what are some basic differences that one can quickly establish between quote-unquote Pakistani and quote-unquote Indian food? I think Indian food is way more spicy than Pakistani food. Indian food is more vegetarian, like the authentic Indian food is mostly vegetarian because of uh, their religion. Pakistani food, again, I'll say it's the gift of globalization that we've received and because of the people traveling from one part of the world to another. So Pakistani food is more beef and and lamb oriented. It has a bit, of course, uh, influence from the Middle East as well. And Indian food is more, it's way spicier. Real authentic Indian food? Oh God, I think I I can't take a bite without tears running down my eyes. And so when I often uh, go to an Indian restaurant here in Australia and they tell me, so do you want it mild or spicy? And I'm like, you know what, make it super spicy because even your super spicy is going to be our very mild back in in our country. So that's something that really, (laughs) I'm like, no, I would really suggest that our non-Pakistani or Indian listeners should definitely go to Western Sydney and try food in Pakistani restaurants and then they will see the difference. And, and of course, to see that difference, because it's a very hairline difference, you have to try it out. And the third most important thing that I want is music. Now, Pakistani film industry is not as big as the Bollywood film industry, of course. But the Pakistani pop industry, music industry is really awesome. And there are so many people who've been struggling in the Pakistani music industry who were later picked up by producers and directors in India and called there and they really made really big names for themselves. And last but not the least, people ask me, is it safe to go to Pakistan? It is entirely safe to go to Pakistan. It is so safe to go to Pakistan. I can't even explain it. And it's beautiful. Pakistan has deserts. It has an ocean. It has mountains. It has snow. It has jungles. So it's got the Himalayas, right? It's got the K2 there. Pakistan has all kinds of... uh, topography as well because drinking is prohibited by islam so don't expect bars and uh, things like that there but yeah it's got excellent food and literature and honestly you know what we love the white people and i think it's because of the british uh, it's also i think a leftover of the british colonial uh, times we love the white people so come to go to pakistan enjoy it and they'll just work themselves out trying to host you and and make sure that you return as a happy traveler back from pakistan I can second that. As a definite white person, I was absolutely shown the very best of Pakistani hospitality, staying as I did at people's family houses. And even, and I'm going to let people in on a bit of a secret here, it was during Ramadan fast time, Mm. but my family were worried that I, (laughs) being a foreign weakling, wouldn't be able to handle the fast. So they all broke fast with me in secret. Uh, during Ramadan, so we ate together during the day. So people are really willing to go out of their way, really out of their way, to make a foreigner feel welcome. I remember my first 
ever story when I wrote when I was 14 years old was about a boy who uh, falls in love with this voice that he hears. And I don't know where I came up with this. And so it he would always hear it under this banyan tree. So he would go and talk to her and he would write to her and, and uh, write things about her. And she was the only one who would listen. And then people started thinking that he was possessed and they were, you know, he locked them in the house and blah, 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 blah. blah. And, that was, and then I remember I used to hide it because I didn't want my mom to know that I was writing romantic stories. So there was a bit of a writer in me. And so when I was um, in college and I was at a time where I had to make a decision, what field of um, study that I want to get into. I chose for myself journalism and mass communication. And then I got that and then I wanted to write. I got, I did a few internships in some of uh, major newspapers, unpaid internships, just because I, and, and then I think the first ever story that I published was about child addicts, drug addicts who in the red light, who in the, okay, so the red light area in Lahore is the prostitution hub. It's, it's not a very safe place to go, even health-wise, and because prostitution is not legal, also because of the religion. And so there were children of these women who had become drug addicts, lying on the streets, on the roads. You would see young boys, just because the girls, they would pick them up and put them into the business, but the boys were just scattered everywhere. So I remember my first, first very ever story as an intern for a newspaper was about these children and how they live their lives on the streets. So it's like a day in the life of these addict children. Uh, and I remember they asked me for money in return of an interview that I want to talk to them, but I offered them free breakfast. And I remember I took it, there were about seven young boys, as young as seven and eight years old and as old as 15 years old. And I took them for that, for a breakfast, like a grand breakfast at, at a very famous small restaurant at the back of the Lahore Fort. What was that scene then taking this ragtag bunch of boys well, into the restaurant? It was, it was difficult to convince them um, to have a breakfast because they wanted 100, 100 rupees. So rupees is a Pakistani currency and they wanted 100 rupees, which is now almost equivalent to a dollar each. But I knew that giving them money meant that they would go and get more drugs. And most of them weren't even on like narcotics. They were smelling this glue because this also, this area had this leather industry where they made manufactured handmade shoes. The famous Pakistani handmade leather shoes, like the Kussas, the women and the Kolapuris that are very Indian and Pakistani. And so whenever these people, they would stick these packs of leather with glue and they would just throw these bunches away. These boys were uh, hooked up on this, uh, smelling this glue. And and before that, I did not even know that this can also be addictive. So yeah, I, I, I it took me about an hour to convince them that I will take them to the breakfast that they might never ever have in their lives or they were so I took them it was amazing some of them didn't eat at all it was heartbreaking to see because maybe with the problems that they were having and then I remember this the second and it was there when I was looking at them and I was talking to them and some of them were like they were some of them were very funny they were trying to be cheeky they asked me if I could have I could take pictures of them some of them were using English words to you know impress me and they said oh no I know how to speak English you know they would just throw a word so it was amazing having them sit there. And then one of the boys actually told me that they were always on the run because there were some people from the NGOs who would come and take them and try to get them into rehabilitation centers. And a few of them, the teenagers, you know, the 12-year-old, the 13 or the 15-year-old said they had run away from these rehabilitation centers. So they said when they got really hungry and really tired, they would just get into these rehabilitation centers. After a while, when they felt a bit better, they would just run out. And I also added an interview of that person who later told me that the rehabilitation 
process that they were trying to do because the person who was running that NGO, the non-government uh, organization, said that he was a recovered drug addict. And so, and I think it was a very first experience of me writing this. And that is when I realized that I don't want to invalidate the works of the great works of the people who have made it so good in journalism. But I think for me, that is when I realized I cannot do write or work on things unless I have felt them close to myself. And I think from that day to the journey towards my PhD in peace and war journalism is because there's something that I, there is a connection that I feel. So if I may go ahead after doing my degree and my internships, I got I got a job with the Express Tribune in Pakistan, which is uh, an international partner with the New York Times. And I think that is when my intellectual journey began. I met people, I traveled the world, I got to know, I, I, I got the opportunity to sit with people who were progressive, who were liberals from the left, from the left, leftist politics or, or, or the left ideologies. And that's when I realized, God, there's an entirely different way to look at the world or look at the, the problems of the world. And and that's, I think, where my real growth began. And that is when, during that time is when I got the opportunity. Actually, I was selected as part of this group to go and work in Afghanistan on this fellowship. I, I remember it was when I was there in Afghanistan when we also got a call that Malala Yousafzai had been shot. So Malala Yusuf was a teenager back then in a very small village of Sawat in northern Pakistan. She was writing these Urdu blogs for BBC. And what she did was she was actually campaigning for girls' education because during that time, the extremist groups had been targeting girls' schools in Pakistan and literally bombing them. A lot of lives were lost. And she used the opportunity that she had to voice against this attacks, these attacks and for the girls to go and to be let to have education. So on her way back from school, when she was going back home, the school van, the, the van that carried the students from the school to back her home was attacked and she was shot by the Taliban. And she got shot at the shoulder, but the bullet went through past her eye and a bit into her skull. Yeah, so she became the teenager who was attacked for standing up for the rights of the girls' education. And later, she went to England to get her surgeries done because she was not safe in Pakistan. She is the Nobel laureate, uh, first teenager girl Nobel laureate and who won the Nobel Prize in 2015, which is again amazing because when Malala Yousafzai was getting the Nobel Peace Prize, I was in Norway, not for that ceremony. I was in Norway because I had been invited by the University of Oslo to present my research on global media and violence. And so at that time, I presented my work around violence against female journalists in Pakistan. And I remember when I went to the Nobel Peace uh, Museum in Oslo, and there this was, I saw her uniform, the, the uniform that she was wearing the day she was attacked. And then it was all blood stained. And I think that these things have really shook me to the core because these things that you've been reading about and listening to and watching on the news become real. They're right in front of you. Are there any female Pakistani journalists that you follow today or who, would, who are out there? 
when I talk about have been attacked or or, or have been victim of violence, I, I don't want to take any names from in this interview at this time, but there are a lot of women who have stood up and have risen their voice. But because of the patriarchal society, they've always been shunned. And this is what we're standing up for. Let alone journalists, just talk about one of these bloggers. She was a Facebook social media celebrity in 2016. And she was just making videos of herself. And and there was a lot of harassment, online harassment and trolling against her. But then in 2016, July, uh, again, when I was presenting my work in at the University of Liverpool about violence against minorities, there was a report. At, I remember I was sitting at a friend's house in Richmond, in London, when we got to the news that she had been strangled by her brother in the name of court honor killing. And that's, I think, became that new wave of uh, feminism in Pakistan, where women stood up and said, we are not going to tolerate this anymore. First of all, why is it even called an honor killing? What is so honorable about killing a woman for honor? And I think it really turned the tables on on this entire debate around the rights of the women and basically the right to live, for heaven's sakes. And as a academic in the field of journalism, I think it would be fair to say that it's a challenging time for the profession. On the one hand, you've got traditional news outlets basically collapsing in terms of their revenue streams. On the other hand, there's a fragmentation through social media, a whole lot of forces that are aligning to create a general distrust of traditional media outlets. And I would say, from my perspective, with good reason, having grown up in Australia where I suppose my understanding and my tastes in media were really defined during the lead up and the execution of the Iraq war, where there was just a constant torrent of lies and if not even lies, just a focus on tiny little details that tended to obscure the bigger picture of the moral evil that was taking place. Opening up the front page of the New York Times or even something like The Guardian, you see again and again, for example, obsessions about notional Russian interference in United States politics when really there are such huge fundamental problems with the United States that have nothing to do with Russia that you'll rarely see <laughs> the New York Times talking about. What do you think the future holds for your profession? If you had asked me this question, say, six months ago, my answer would have been very different because the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic has really changed not only the way we are working, but also the way we look at things. It's just become very uncertain. In Australia, and I would like to add to this when I say that I'm an academic, that I am a casual academic with these universities. And that's another problem with the Australian universities, the heavy casualization of academic staff. And that is also why I end up teaching at three universities, which is very difficult for me to manage. But along with the experience that it gives me, it's it's uncertain. So as a migrant and as a casual academic, I have lived the last five years in quite uncertainty, but I think 
humans, we are social animals. We cannot just stay without interacting with each other. So there is hope in a way that as long as our, our, that our basic need of communicating, there will be news and we will want to be in touch with the world. I understand that the way we want to be in touch with the world is changing dramatically, but then it also brings with itself new challenges. For example, when I started my career, the academic industry specifically related to media and communication was not very much focused on uh, digital media or social media. And I'm talking about six years ago, five, six years ago. In the last few years, it's everywhere. Cyberspace and data and surveillance and digital and privacy. And these have these issues have really become really important issues in the field of academia because of the way the consumer or the end user or the media users are changing their habits. So I'm really hopeful we might not have the same problems, but then the problems are ever changing because of the way our habits are changing around news consumption. If this COVID-19 thing in the quarantine in the last few months is, if there's anything that it has taught me around my career is I think that I've realized that for at least as long as I think my life would be as an average human in Australia, I think we will need teachers and we do need face-to-face learning. It is good for our mental health. It is good for our learning in the form of experiences as well. And it is more fulfilling. I think the digital world in the world of academia is not as fulfilling. Just look at us. It wouldn't it have been amazing if I was sitting in your studio in front of you. It would have been a very different experience, something that would definitely be far better than us being in our own homes. We can't see each other. I couldn't be wearing what I'm wearing right now, put it that way. Well, well, same here. I wouldn't be in my pajamas, but still. Then again, the problems would be different and the solutions will be different, which is exactly what we're going to see. One thing that can help the academic industry survive in Australia or in other countries, but more so specifically in Australia, is that Australian government really needs to focus on how can they survive without depending or relying on international students. This comes from me, from someone who has been an international student or is an international student. I was just reading this news this morning, which says that um, student fee might be increased by 113%, 113% per session in the next year. I don't think so it would have been like this if there wasn't such a heavy reliance on international students. And I'm not saying stop taking international students. Don't stop taking international students. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here. But create some balance. Honestly, having taught there, I realized how 50% of the university's funding comes from the international students, and specifically from Asian countries, right? From India and Pakistan and China. Australia's education industry is booming. Australia must be a new place for me. I love this place. It's now our third largest export behind iron ore and coal. Australia is one of the most successful international educators, particularly in its universities, in the world. Universities are admitting foreign students in record numbers. How do you think universities view international students? Look, um, of course, they are the cash cows. There is no doubt about it. 
a bit of a saying that every journalist has a book manuscript in their desk drawer. Is that true of you? Oh, yes, it is. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if it's worth talking about, but yes, for sure. Is, uh, is it a book of poetry, uh, more love stories about a young man under a banyan tree hearing a voice? <laughs> I'm, I'm sure there are a lot of people who still love to read stories about people falling in love with people they can't see, I'm sure. That's a very famous genre in literature. But no, the book that I want to write, I don't want to call it an autobiography, but it's more like out of my experiences, is definitely from my experiences as part of the Pakistani diaspora in, in, in Australia. PhD students are quite isolated already because of their research. But I think my two plus years at SPS radio as a radio producer and a radio um, host has really helped me go and, and, and you know, be in touch with the Pakistani diaspora in, in, in Australia. And this is the book about the experience, the good and the bad, the black and the white and the gray in between. So yeah, that's what I'm talk, writing about right now, or at least thinking about right now. Have you got a working title? <laughs> it's about things I can't speak. Yeah. Things I can't say. And so well, I decided to write about them. Aisha Hassan, something that I will, and no doubt many listeners of this show will, look forward to reading as soon as it hits book stands. Thanks so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. There's so much to talk about growing up as a Pashtun woman in Pakistan or about the nation or just the country in the world or as a Pakistani Pashtun woman in Australia. There's so many aspects to this journey, but I hope that I have done a bit of justice whatever we have discussed in this podcast. It was lovely talking to you. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome you to the 18th Lux Dial Awards. And now let's all rise for the National Anthem of Pakistan. South America was a place I'd wanted to go my whole life. Uh, since I was probably in late primary school, I'd wanted to go down to Patagonia and go hiking, and I'd really wanted to go to Machu Picchu in Peru. I'd been saving for it since I'd finished school. And I was really aware at the time that our parents' generation were really perplexed and often quite negative about our decision to go there. For them, it had been a place of extreme violence, political tension, children disappearing off the streets, adults disappearing off the streets, military coups and uh, interesting things happening with left-wing governments and left-wing people had happened all across that period. And I suppose for them it seemed very strange that we all wanted to go there. Like it would never have occurred to them. And so where you went in South America to the dismay of your own parents, perhaps your own children will head to Pakistan and Afghanistan as backpackers. <laughs> God willing, inshallah, soon enough. I really do mean that seriously, in the sense that when I went to Pakistan, once the flight landed, once we finally got in and the visa was all cool, it's absolutely beautiful. And honestly, compared to India next door, 
far less crowded, far fewer tourists, wonderful food, the warmest hospitality you could imagine. Here's hoping that just like you, Valancey, blazed a bit of a trail to backpack through South America, that your kids might be able to head into the Hindu Kush, explore the Indus River Valley, visit places in Pakistan that for us are a complete write-off in our imagination, but in reality... Love you, Pakistan. Love you, Pakistan. याद रखना कभी औरत के बदन की जागीरदारी की दौड़ में लगकर उसकी रूह को ना भूल जाना मर्द औरत के जिस्म का मालिक बनकर समझता है कि उस औरत को अपना बना लिया जबकि असल में वो कितना बेबस है उस हकीकत का उसे अंदाजा ही नहीं होता औरत के जिस्म को आजाद और उसकी रूह को पाने की कोशिश करना उसमें तुम्हारी असल जीत है वरना गोश्त पोस्ट तो भरे बाजार में भी बिकता है अपना जिस्म तो हर हारी हुई औरत मर्द के हवाले कर देती है कभी उस पर मुसलत किए हुए शोहर की सूरत में कभी किसी कमजोर लम्हे में जरूरत की खातिर और कभी किसी हमला आवर के खौफ से मगर अपनी रूह वो सिर्फ उसके हवाले करती है जिससे वो मोहब्बत करती है उसकी रूह को छुओ वो तुम्हारी पूजा करते करते नहीं हारेगी क्योंकि रूह तक बस उस ही को पहुंच है जिसे वो आने दे औरों को गैरों को इजाजत नहीं और वहां तक रसाई बस यूं ही नहीं मिलेगी उसे आजाद करो बाख्तियार करो उसे जीने दो उसे हदों का गुलाम ना बनाओ उस पर भरोसा करो उसके फैसलों और कामयाबियों पर फख्र उसकी सोच और इरादों की ऊंचाइयों को नापो उसकी छाती के वजन कमर के घेर और रानों के दरमियान के फासले को नहीं और हाँ अटल मजबूत और पूरा भरोसा शर्त है और देखो इसमें खयानत कभी ना करना और ये सब हो सके तो सही न हो सके तो मियाँ सारी उम्र दुनिया के करोड़ों मर्दों की तरह तुम अपनी ही बनाई हुई सच्चाई में झूठ की जिंदगी जियो तुम्हारे झूठ तुम ही को मुबारक और हजार बार मुबारक हो